a family speaker. That's John Woodbury. John, come on up. Um, just a pro tip, if you're ever invited to preach on Sunday morning, bring your own cheering section. He's got a whole row there of family, so <laughs> if nothing else, he's, come on up. He's got one row that's rooting for him, so I'm going to remember that next time I preach. I'm just going to seed people into the auditorium. So, uh, hey, John's awesome. I don't... I don't know, what can you not say about John? Um, he's married Dee, first of all, so that was really smart. And uh, she's amazing. <laughs> and uh, I know that you've, uh, you've really wrestled with this sermon and really sought after God, and so we're excited to hear it this morning. So take it away. Thank you. This morning, I'm going to talk about God's provision for being transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is Memorial Day, and that little video has brought it to our attention, the great sacrifices our servicemen and women have given so that we can have freedom. But I must tell you that I'm 77 years old, and I have uh, spent a life of uh, intentional and thoughtful reflection on things. And I'm Looking back today, by way of illustration, to some of my own memories, but also to let you know that I've studied the writings of great men, and I have a couple I want to share with you. One, Benjamin Franklin wrote about how to be remembered. He said, if you would not be forgotten as soon as you are dead and rotten, either write things worth reading or do things worth the writing. And another famous man by the name of Aristotle wrote, knowledge without experience is philosophy. Experience without knowledge is ignorance. But experience with knowledge can, but doesn't necessarily lead to wisdom. This is worldly wisdom. But we all acknowledge it's elusive sometimes for us because of our fallen nature. And given that fallibility, some years ago, my daughter, who's here visiting with her family today, suggested I read a little book called The, the, um, the Elegance of the Hedgehog. It was a story about a family living in Paris. And one of the characters, a young woman, had a habit of writing down what she called profound thoughts that occurred to her about existential experiences in her life. And that little idea inspired me to start a collection of my own profound thoughts. That is what God, through his Holy Spirit, would lay on my heart as a word of wisdom about what I was reading in my devotions. So I started collecting them, and I ended up with about 81. And I published it in a little book which I've entitled Veritas, which is Latin for truth, a collection of existential inspirations as profound thoughts. And at the end of the service today, I'm going to make that available to you if you would like to take a copy and use it to think about your life as you go through your daily reflections and maybe come up with some of your own. But for now, what does the Bible say 
about transformation. I see my slide isn't complete. But uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Apostle Paul wrote, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, what we're going to talk about today and what I'm going to share with you are some areas of my life that I try to avoid. And many of you may have the same experiences. It may be bad memories. It may be someone you haven't forgiven. It may be other areas of stress that keep you from being one with him. In John chapter 17, verse 22, quoting the words of Jesus, he said, Jesus said, I have given to them the glory and honor which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. That is, Jesus and God are one, and he wants us to be one with him. If I was completely one with him, that would take care of everything else. But unfortunately, there have been times, looking back on it objectively, when I was not one with him. So I use six examples today to illustrate when that happens, when you recognize that in your life, that God has provided a remedy for it. And when we start, we know that what the ultimate result should be. And Paul wrote in Galatians 5, verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If we were completely one with him, this would be the picture that we have of ourselves and what others see of us. I've drawn a diagram to illustrate this point. A cup being held by a hand is a symbol of your life. And like all lives, many things come into it. They drip into it, as it were, over time, with your own experiences, the things that have happened to you, the memories you can't seem to forget, and maybe some that you have. And they can be extremely negative. For example, worry, loneliness, guilt, anger, anxiety, doubt, distress, when those things creep into your life, and by no means do I suggest that anyone has all of those things. And maybe you have none, and what a blessing that would be. But when you do, they tend to fill your cup up, and they spill over. And what you end up with are troubles. Estrangement, depression, fearfulness, indifference, rudeness. And these are things you maybe even recognize about yourself here and there. Or Maybe what others recognize about you. 
I've called this, my cup runneth over. Because it's kind of like what happens. My first illustration has to do with fear. I grew up in a very fortunate environment. I had a mother and father that loved me. My father didn't get married till he was 45, and I was the fourth child born. He was a successful tobacco farmer in North Florida. But he was not very open about how he felt about things. And he lived in a world in which he says, I won't have much to say about the world, but I have a lot to say about the immediate things that are of interest to me. And that desire to control our lives instilled in me at an early age a fear of rejection. I had a mother, on the other hand, who was a giving, loving, compassionate person. She's like that metaphor of the mother hen protecting her chicks. And every time something would happen with my father that would frighten us, she would be there to say, it's all right. It's going to be okay. And out of this experience over the years, I developed this fear of rejection. I didn't recognize it at first. He died at about 83. I had graduated from law school by then. And after his death and burial, I was sitting in church one day, and we had communion every Sunday. And you'd go down to the altar. And I started thinking about my father, that I had not forgiven him for all of the ways that I felt he had frightened me. And that was about 1975 or so. But 25 years later, approximately, that fear that I thought was gone began to rear its ugly head. Now, why anyone with a built-in fear of rejection would ever deliberately choose to be a lawyer <laughs> is a mystery all its own. More than that, he would, someone who would choose to be a trial lawyer, where rejection of clients, judges, opposing attorneys, witnesses, circumstances you can't control, happen all the time. But about the year 2000, it got to the place where, you know, you have that phone call you need to make, and you know it's bad news, or you know it's something unpleasant you're going to hear, and I would say, I'll do that tomorrow. I'd put it off. Procrastination is called. And I would be going to court, and in the old days back then, uh, if, if your case was ready for trial, you go to the presiding judge's courtroom, and they would call your case, and if a judge was available, they'd assign your case to him, you'd go to his courtroom and try the case. If it wasn't available because there were too many criminal cases or something, then you would be postponed a week. And I could almost remember praying that it would be postponed. <laughs> I was prepared, but I had this irrational fear that gripped me. So, one day, about then, I was reading a little book, and I brought it along. Today it's called The Christian Life and the Unconscious, written by a Christian psychiatrist, dealing with unconscious memories and things like that. And I happened to be reading this particular segment 
which looking back on it has absolutely nothing to say about fear. Nothing. And I want to read it to you, just real short. Eric Gill, the artist, refers in his autobiography to the evil thoughts which often came into his mind and says he found relief by casting them onto the rock Christ as soon as they entered his mind, making no attempt to struggle with them by himself. And suddenly it hit me. Fear of rejection or fear of anything is sin. I had never thought of that before because Fear is something you're afraid someone else is going to do to you. But my inability to take responsibility for that was separating me from that peace that God wanted me to have in all circumstances. So I said, well, if fear is sin, what's God's remedy for sin? God's remedy for sin, we find in 1 John Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we delude and lead ourselves astray, and the truth is not in us. If we freely admit that we have sinned and confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I like the amplified version that says, continuously cleanse us from all unrighteousness, meaning it's an ongoing thing. It's always available. So I came up with a little formula. Whenever I had one of these irrational fears, I would confess it and believe in faith that God forgives me. And then here's the important lesson that I learned. Then I would go do the very thing that I was afraid of and was putting off. And as I began to do that, I learned some amazing things. Number one, most of the time, the thing you were worrying about wasn't real anyway. Number two, even if it was, if you move in faith, God is with you in the midst of that circumstance. And the third thing is, as I began to apply what I call God's formula for the relief of sin of fear, is I was healed of it in a couple of months. And I don't have it anymore. And that was the blessing and the lesson that I learned. My second example is a little bit lighter subject. All of us drive, right? Cars around Seattle. Have you ever noticed there's a lot of traffic? <laughs> like driving on the freeway these days? And, and how you tend to get frustrated because of that other idiot that's driving? You ever had that experience? Well, I read in uh, C.S. Lewis somewhere that he said, the other person's excuse for their conduct is usually better than you think it is. And your excuse for your conduct is usually worse than you think it is. So I started putting that little thing into practical application when I'm driving. A car would do something stupid, you know. And I started looking for his excuse. Why did he do that? And you know what? In most cases, there was another car that pulled in front of him that I couldn't see. Or a child walking across the street, 
for some other reason. And once I began to do that and put it into practice, I began to have peace while driving. I call it drive like Jesus. <laughs> Just recently, I was at a seminar at the Maidenbauer Center, and I left the lecture and I needed to go to the restroom, so I was walking out, and there was a man walking in front of me, and he kept weaving left and right, like this. I mean, you know, two or three steps. I said, what's wrong with this guy? And then I started applying my lesson, and I looked, and he had a cast on his right foot. That's why he was, and it relieved the tension. And, and this is a light subject, but it's one very practical, is if you continue to practice God's principles, he will lead to a change in your attitude, your perceptions, and give you that peace that you need. Why would we do this? Because God reminds us that he loves each of us. With the story of the Good Samaritan, when the Samaritan, who's the least favored person in all Israel, took time out to go minister to the man who had been beaten by the robbers on the side of the road. And, and God gives us this passage in Luke chapter 10, verse 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved himself a neighbor to him who fell among the robbers. He answered, the one who showed pity and mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. In other words, God wants you to act in reliance upon him because he cares about every person you will meet. You just have to find out why. My next example is called getting uh, developing a relationship with strangers. Now, why would you want to do that? A natural tendency is to just kind of avoid spending time with somebody you don't know. Uh, you know, in the old ritual that you hear, someone will ask you, how are you? And they answer, fine, how are you? Kind of a meaningless expression. You don't really care about this person and they don't really care about you, just feel like you have to say something. I've come up with an answer I use all the time. I say, I'm okay in most departments, which is a truthful statement. If you want to talk about a peripheral neuropathy or something else, we can. But uh, the point is, most people really don't. But should we? Should we take more of an interest in the people we encounter in our daily lives? I say we should because God loves each one of them. He knows what their troubles are, what their benefits are, what their contributions are, what their passions are. And he wants us to be able to have a relationship with them. So how do you go about doing that? There's a formula, as it were, that comes from a Dr. Roby, an Australian psychologist. He says, use the name at least three times, their name. Have an open-ended question to discover their passion in life. And uh, focus on developing their passion in the discussion by repeating back what they said or taking an interest in what is important to them. And then conclude the, the brief discussion by maybe arranging some future event. 
And as you begin to practice this, you will begin to see and feel that you really do begin to care about that stranger you meet and give God a chance to develop a real interest and love for those like he loves them. In Galatians 5, 14 says, For the whole law is compiled with one precept. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. You shall love your neighbor the same way you want God to love you, with love, acceptance, tolerance, and respect. And if you can to practice these things, you will begin to be changed or transformed. Because this wonderful Father we have created us with the capacity to be transformed. There are billions of neurons in your brain, and they come together in patterns. And when you encounter an experience that's triggered by a memory or a past experience and so forth, it causes an emotional reaction. But the good news is it's not permanent. As you begin to practice his principles, he somehow or another reorders it so that you begin to have a feeling of respect and love for that person. Another example may be a natural tendency for shyness. What's a shy person? Someone who won't ever talk about themselves or anything. They're content, maybe not content, but they're confined in their own little world, right? Years ago, I worked for the Boeing Company, and uh, I was long before I went to law school. And one of the ladies in our group told me one day, John, you know, you're very impersonal. And Phyllis was her name. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she wouldn't tell me. I kept quizzing her. What do you mean? But she wouldn't tell me. She didn't want to embarrass me, I guess. And it, but the more I thought about it, and I didn't learn it until years later, is that I was so caught up in the things I was thinking about that I didn't have room for her in my interactions with her on a daily basis. That's called shyness. Now, you can have the opposite version. That's where yourself has become an idol because it's so important. There was another man in that same group. He was an auditor, I think. And uh, no matter what you talked about, within 10 seconds, he had himself in the story. And it was kind of annoying to hear it all the time. And I decided one day to test him to see how much he could take talking about him. I went on for a half an hour. And believe me, there was no bottom in that well. And he didn't even know I was making fun of him. He was so full of himself. And that's, you know, it's a reverse form of shyness, but it's also just as damaging in terms of building relationships with others. <clears throat> but what if I could see the benefit from the need for relationship and so con be concerned about others sufficiently so that I am begin to be changed? So they really do care about the people I encounter. This reflection on self separates you. And God's remedy is a point to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, 
where he, the writer Paul lists a whole series of, of virtues. For the rest of time, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of reverence, is honorable and seemly, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and lovable, whatever is kind and gracious, if there's any virtue and excellence, and if there's anything worthy of praise, think on and weigh and take account of these things. Fix your minds on them. And then he says the important point to me. Practice what you have learned and model your way of living on it. And the peace of God will be with you. And I have added something to that verse. And I said, and let the rest of your practices of, of indifference go. Think about the things that will elevate that person. <clears throat> Another example of uh, this is feelings of love. Have there been people that maybe you know you should have feelings of love for, but you really just don't, for one reason or another? And the practice method here is to start acting like you love them. What would you do if you love that person that your natural feelings tell you are unlovable? What, what would your conduct, what would you say? And, and I think the answer is to start doing it anyway. Sounds a little dishonest almost. But as you start doing it, the amazing thing is God will turn that into true feelings of love for those you encounter. <clears throat> In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the Apostle Paul wrote, And all of us with unveiled face continue to behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are constantly being transfigured into his very own image in ever-increasing splendor and from one degree of glory to another from the Lord the Spirit. Okay, when you look in a mirror, what do you see? Usually yourself, right? It's a reflection of your image. But what the writer is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying, when you look in the mirror that is the Word of God and His inspiration, you will see a reflection of the one being transformed. That's what this passage says. As you practice these things, you will begin to see a reflection of the change in you. We have the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall. They walk with God in the garden. There's no competition between self and obedience. They were synonymous. It was just the way things are. Well, along came temptation and the fall. And it was no longer that way. In fact, God had to send his only son to die on a cruel cross. That if we believe on him and begin to put our thoughts on him, and model our lives after him, then we can return to the garden of relationship with God. <clears throat> Another example 
I use a legal expression, something I'm kind of familiar with, uh, partnerships. In the law of partnerships, it's an agreement among two, two or more persons for a common objective, usually a business of some kind. All right? And in the law of partnerships, if one partner does something that benefits the partnership, every partner benefits from it. Conversely, if one of the partners does something that's detrimental to the partnership, every partner suffers the consequence of it. <clears throat> and so in a partnership, you have both benefits and burdens. I came up with a name for my partnership with Jesus. I call it J&J &J FLP, John and Jesus Full Liability Partnership. <laughs> right? Full Liability Partnership. Everything I do that benefits our partnership is a blessing to him. Everything I do that's detrimental to our partnership is detrimental to his plan because he wants the partnership venture to succeed. So I just suggest to you that you form your own partnership with Jesus and model your way after it. In John chapter 17, verse 22 again, I have given them the glory and honor which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. In other words, in your partnership, in God's eyes, you're one. My final example has to do with the imagination. I call it the first thought principle of discipline. Dr. David Viscott, uh, a psychiatrist, wrote in a little book I stumbled across one day in the library when I was in the non-fiction area of the shelves. And he said that all of the patients he ever had over his years of practice their problem could be reduced to one thing. The failure to take responsibility for your present feelings. And I thought, that's an interesting statement. C.S. Lewis wrote somewhere, as if your imagination is obedient, you don't have much of a problem with appetites. It's the thing you're thinking about. Let's take an example, anger. Anyone ever been angry? <laughs> you stump your toe, or you drop a book out of the car, like happened to me this morning. <laughs> and, and, and your emotional reaction is what? It's a flood of anger. Well, I would like to imagine a world where I could anticipate every unexpected thing that happens, and I would be in control, and it would never be unpleasant. Unfortunately, there is no such world. <clears throat> so when it happens, I try to stop and take responsibility for my present feelings. Oh, it's one of those things again. And allow God to deal with me in the present circumstance. <clears throat> if you're reluctant to apply God's formula of recognizing sin for what it is, confessing, believing, and acting on it, then it means your imagination has not been obedient. But there's a reward for a change when you do. 
We're reminded in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life and spirit and of the joints and marrow, exposing and sifting and analyzing and judging the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. God's spirit will reach to the very core of your being. If you use this admonition to subject your present feelings to him, then and take responsibility for them, then he will lead you to a path of righteousness as he promised he would. Those are my six things. And you know what prayer is? When you call on to pray for someone? Well, that happens all the time. Sometimes you're a little reluctant to pray. Why? Because you think God may not answer it and you might be embarrassed. But uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, being the proof of things we do not see, and the conviction of their reality. I asked a couple of people to come and share a brief testimony about answered prayer. And the first is Christy Rogers. Wherever. So um, growing up, I grew up in a Catholic school and one of my best friends, we knew God, but we knew him from a distance. We didn't have an intimate relationship with him. Um, and so through the years, I came to know Jesus and had more of a personal relationship with him. So of course, she was one of those people that was on my heart that would get to know Jesus the way that I knew him. And uh, I would go back once a year to Hawaii, and it just so happened the Lord moved her to say, I'm only going to church once a year, and that's when Christy comes to town. So I took advantage of that and made sure that she'd always come to church with me, and she did very faithfully. And one day, just this past December, uh, there was an event after church where her, where her son's bike got stolen. This was a pretty big deal because this was his transportation to tutoring, to sports, to school, and they just spent, you know, a few hundred dollars on this bike. That's kind of a big deal in Hawaii. It's very expensive. And uh, she was devastated by it, and I was driving, and you know how you pray before you pray? You pray, you know, to the Lord, and like, okay, Lord, just, just, just show her how much you love through this prayer. This is my request. Just show her that you love her. And so I, after she got off the phone with her husband, I said, you know, this is a great time for us to just ask God for help. Right? Can, can we do that? Can we just ask the Lord for some help? And so she reluctantly said yes. And I'm nervous. Oh, Lord, please answer this prayer, right? <laughs> and um, so the, the Lord put on my heart, Lord, just give her the royal treatment through this experience. So we pray, Lord, specifically the royal treatment of your love to shine through that not only would we find that bike and find it quickly, promptly, Lord, but that there would be a camera that, uh, you know, I, I named a, a few things and um, he answered every single one. When we got to the site, which now keep in mind, finding a bike is not on the priority list for police officers, right? And... Uh, 
when we got to the site, there were three police officers that came up. And so I'm like, wow, royal treatment. Ended up being only two officers that came to the site. But, you know, all through the experience, the prayer was answered. And the bike was found after reporting it um, within the next half hour, which is absolutely a miracle. And in that, my friend had an opportunity to show God's grace because she had an opportunity to press charges. And she looked at me and she chose not to and give this person hope who was a homeless 22-year-old. So this was a really huge deal um, for my friend. And, you know, we even, I was using my cousin's truck who, that's how we were able to take the bike from the location, you know, put it in the back of the truck and um, praising God for it. And I was jumping up with excitement. Little did I know what God was up to <laughs> because that's when Pastor Kurt started asking us to pray for somebody to have salvation and I had, it had already been on my heart to be praying for her, for her husband, and for her son to receive Christ. But then something happened for her. She lost her uncle, who was near and dear to their family, where they would meet and talk and have dinner uh, together, you know, on a daily basis. Lost her, her uncle. It was devastating for her family. And in the middle of going to clean out his stuff, the Lord put it on her heart to reach out to me. And she was already on my heart. And uh, she was telling me how heartbroken she was and how she didn't realize she was okay with the death at peace and how she doesn't even know why she reached out to me. And I said, do you know how much God loves you? Do you remember that miraculous act, him showing you how he sees you and he loves you? And she confessed, you have no idea how much I think about that day and how often. And I said, the Lord has a fresh hope for you and a peace and more than you can imagine, a bright future for you, more than you know. Would you like to pray and receive him into your heart? And she did. And she wept as she received him. God is good, you know, as we step out boldly. So she knows Christ, and we're still praying for her husband and for her son. Keep her in your prayers. Thank, thank you, Christy. I, I asked my wife, Dee, to come up and share another short testimony of uh, praying in an unusual circumstance where you do not expect to have an answer. Hi. Uh, this happened when my mom was recovering from uh, colon surgery at the age of 92. And I, she was in a rehab center, and I went over there, and, and she was there two weeks, so in and out, in and out. And one day, a lady came in who had uh, broken her hip, and they had re given her a new one. And, uh, but every time I saw her, she was always sleeping, and she refused to get up and walk or anything. And so... Um, I mean, I'm looking at everybody. Oh, goodness. I mean, <laughs> uh, anyway, so the Lord had put on my heart to pray, pray for this lady to know, to know him. And every time I came in, she was sleeping. And so I said, Mom, she's always sleeping. And God's supposed to talk with her about God. And she says, oh, she just fakes that when people come in. Just shake her and, and talk to her. And I said, okay. <laughs> 
And so I go in, I can't remember her name at this point, but um, you know, please, uh, I, I just want to talk to you. And she's, oh, okay. And I says, well, I want to talk to you about God. Would that be all right? And she said, okay. And so I just led her through every step to how to receive Jesus and what he, he could do for us for eternal life purposes. And um, I led her through every step. I, she was nodding, and I said, do you see what I'm saying? And I just kind of touched all the bases. And then I said, well, can we pray for you to receive him? And she says, okay. And I said, well, just repeat after me. And we, I went through the sinner's prayer and, and uh, got to the end. And I says, congratulations. God, you know God, and you can develop this. And, and um, she looked at me and she says, well, thank you for letting me be on your TV show. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was an audience to that show waiting for her to come up there. Okay. Um, what I'm trying to get across to you today is in the areas of your life where you have a hindrance, it's a problem you either recognize or others recognize and they're bold enough to tell you. Realize that you can turn to him and confess it and be forgiven of whatever it is that separates you from him and put it into practice in faith and he will reward you by transforming you by a renewing of your mind my last drawing and it's not a very clear copy unfortunately um, is that same cup that I showed you before but this one you'll notice loneliness I'll look at mine because I can read it better. Loneliness has been replaced with friendship. Worry has been replaced with trust. Guilt has been replaced with resolve. Anger has been replaced with control. Anxiety with peace. Doubt with certainty. Distress with calmness. And notice the hand is self-control. And the overflow of this cup are the fruits of the Spirit. The Apostle John wrote, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are here and now God's children, but it is not yet disclosed what we shall be. But we know that when he comes and is manifested, we shall resemble and be like him. But we shall see him just as he is. The only way you can see him as he is, is if you're being transformed into his image by the renewing of your mind. This little book that I told you about, I'll make available to you out there, Veritas is uh, something that you can use to meditate on what God brings on your heart. And there's even room in it to write down your own thoughts. And uh, just recently, a testimony about that. I gave a copy to my niece in Florida. We were there on a visit. 
And she sent me an email and said, I can't tell you how the timing of Veritas in my life is oh so needed. The title says it all. Quiet time, reflection, self-examination, and seeking God's will, not my own, in a very noisy, human-centered world. Veritas has become my daily devotion. You do realize you're married to the goddess of truth, Diana, referring to my wife. Actually, the goddess of truth was Aletha, but that's okay. I will leave you another great quote. Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what is heaven for? I should take you take this gift of profound thoughts of truth inspired by me, on me, and use them in your meditations and your thoughts to God's honor and glory. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is when his plan for you is fulfilled because he wants to see you being transformed into his image by the renewing of your mind and has given you the ability to do it. There's one profound thought that I did not get included in the little pamphlet. It's actually got the wrong number. It should have been 82. But uh, trust is a channel through which the peace of God flows. Thankfulness is the rudder that steers your life's boat through in the roughest segments of the channel. Thankfulness and praise are identical. A life of praise and thankfulness in all things will guide you through all difficulties as you become one with Him. Examine any area of your life that's bringing you difficulty, that separates you from Him, and put your trust in Him. And watch and see what He will do as you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'd like to conclude with uh, communion. Thank you. The first cup is the bread. It, God tells us in Genesis very early on that God created man in his man and woman in his image. In other words, to be like him. Well, we know that God paid us an incredible compliment by giving us the ability to accept him or reject him. And since he created this dilemma, only he could pay the price for it. So he became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and died an undeserved but cruel death on a cross for you. So when you take this bread, just remember that God broke his own life because he loved you. Take it and remember. The other cup is the symbolic of the, of the blood of Jesus. He shed his blood for you. Drink this in remembrance of that precious gift. Drink it now.
in this morning? So uh, thankful is the word to be part of a church where we don't need a senior pastor every week, amen, but that God speaks to members of our body. So John, thank you for being willing to share and, and hear from the Lord this morning. Ushers, would you come forward? We're going to take our offer.